Welcome back, listeners. I'm Shiv, one of the co-hosts for our Doctors Who Create podcasts, and today we're talking sleep. I sit down with Dr. Guy Leschziner, who's a consultant neurologist and sleep specialist here in London at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospitals. Listen as he talks about his experience working across various media to educate the public on how to sleep better. Thanks for sitting down with me today, Guy. It's a pleasure, Shiv. So I know that you're a specialist in sleep, and you went to medical school and you got your PhD in the genetics of epilepsy. So when did the interest in sleep begin, or what drew you to kind of specialize in this field? Well, I think it's a a long story. As medical students, we get very little teaching in sleep, and I think the latest audit of how much sleep teaching medical students currently get is about an hour and a half over the course of their entire medical school. But I was fortunate enough that in the process of my undergraduate degree, I was set a paper on what the function of dreaming is. And I went away and did some reading and was pushed towards a now a rather famous paper by Francis Crick and, uh, and one of his collaborators. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know, at the time I was probably 19 or 20, that actually... You know, I'd always assumed that sleep was the thing that you did in order not to feel sleepy, and it was this sudden sort of realisation that actually sleep had a number of other functions that really were for primarily for the brain. So that was my first encounter with sleep as, a, as an academic subject. And then during the course of my training, I was lucky enough, whilst I was a, a junior neurologist, to be here for a period of time and at that time one of my now colleagues had come back from UCLA where he had been involved in some of the very early work in sleep medicine particularly respiratory sleep medicine and he had brought sleep as a clinical specialty really back to Guy's and St Thomas's and there was a very germinal sleep centre that was set up here so during the course of my training I was increasingly exposed to clinical sleep medicine And I began to appreciate how important clinical sleep is to all other aspects of my neurological practice, you know, be it epilepsy, be it migraines or a range of other headaches, be it functioning of individuals with MS. So it became apparent that actually sleep influenced every single aspect of our physical and and psychological well-being. And that was really the start of the journey. Mm. And so, I guess in that journey, what was the biggest change you've seen in the field of sleep since it started, you said, in its germinal phases when you got involved with it? And then I feel like now there's so many researchers nitpicking things involved in sleep. So what's the biggest kind of transformation you've seen? Well, I think the biggest transformation is the interest in in Mm -hmm. sleep. It it was very much seen as a, a niche subject that was primarily all about sleep disordered breathing so sleep apnea sleep certainly in the UK and certainly in other parts of the world was always primarily seen as a specialty that was an extension of respiratory medicine because of that association with obstructive sleep apnea whereas now I think certainly uh, neuroscientists have become much more involved and they've always been involved to some degree in terms of understanding the biology of sleep, but when it came to clinical sleep medicine, much less so. And alongside that has been the huge increase in public interest in sleep, whereas sleep was generally seen as a bit of an inconvenience, something that you had to do in order not to feel sleepy. I think there's been a sea change in the way that 
we all now approach sleep as being a fundamental aspect mm -hmm. of our waking lives as well as our sleeping lives. Right, yeah, I agree. And so I know you've taken uh, multimedia approaches in kind of sharing the work that you do in sleep with the world. You've gone into documentary or reality TV to, to writing and to an exhibition now at the Science Gallery in London. So did you always have a passion for public education in this way or how did that come to be? Uh, no, not at all. I, you okay. know, if you'd have asked me five or ten years ago, mm -hmm. would I ever envisage doing any of this work, <laughs> I would have said absolutely not and I had no desire to do it. I think it's largely come about by accident. You know, my journey into this field really started through a random conversation with somebody at a party who was working for the BBC and I was chatting to him about what I do and he said, oh, you should come and have a chat with us about making a, a radio documentary series. And at the time I thought, I'm far too busy, this sounds like far too much hard work, uh, and I ignored it. But a couple of years later, for various reasons, it became a, a rather opportune time to at least consider it. And I ended up having a, a radio series on sleep and its uh, various disorders commissioned by a radio channel called Radio 4, which I guess is the equivalent of NPR in, in mm. the States. And it was really from that that everything else stemmed. So on the basis of that, I was then approached to write a book, which ended up being The Nocturnal Brain. Mm. And everything has, has really come out of that. Mm, wow. Yeah. So it's kind of a happenstance. Happenstance, but I, but I guess that certainly the more of it I've done, first of all, the more I've enjoyed it, and secondly, the more I've appreciated that actually as doctors we're very good at having conversations with ourselves. Right. You know, our, the whole basis of clinical teaching is about case reports, it's about journal clubs, it's about lectures. But actually what we're less good at doing, and there are some medical specialties that are better than others, but where we're really very limited in the... Uh, is in the area of having conversations with the people who are actually experiencing these conditions. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the world of sleep medicine, where some of these conditions are poorly recognised, poorly understood, grossly underdiagnosed, actually it's really important to empower individuals who are experiencing these conditions, because often the process of a diagnosis starts with the person recognising that they have something wrong with their sleep. Mm. Yeah, and do you find that many times it's just the, the patient needs to be heard and that, that's where that's kind of the first step towards the diagnosis or towards the treatment plan? I think the patient needs to be heard yeah. and it needs to be recognised as being a problem right, rather right. than just, oh, well, you're just, a, yeah, you're just a poor sleeper, go away. Right, yeah. Because actually, you know, there are many, many people out there who are suffering from these disorders but are just being dismissed by the medical profession. And I think it comes back to one of the statements that I made very early on, mm -hmm. which is that actually, as medics, we are very ill-informed about sleep and sleep medicine. Right, yeah. And I guess it, it all begins with raising this awareness and uh, educating the public. And so out of all the media you've worked in, have you had a favourite one or a most rewarding one? I, I think the, perhaps the book, actually, because mm -hmm. I think it allowed me to say what I wanted to say in a, in a relatively unfiltered way without the time constraints of a, a radio programme right. or a TV programme or a, a, a podcast. And I think that the book, more than anything else, allowed me to develop my relationship with my patients much more. So all the patients that I describe in the book 
were really, in a way, involved in writing the book because they saw all the chapters before it went to the publisher. Many of the patients are not anonymized in, in the book because they were happy to share their information, but it allowed me to spend a lot of time with each of these individual patients to understand their background, to understand their family life, to really see them as individuals rather than somebody who you see in a clinic for 30 minutes or an hour. Yeah, 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 totally. And I've seen the, the show, the reality TV. The Secrets of Sleep. Yeah, it's The Secrets of yeah. Sleep. And so I feel like a big part of that was sitting down with the patients and, and speaking to them about their diagnosis and kind of, yeah, I guess it's a collaborative effort with the patient to kind of create their diagnosis plan or how to move forward from here. It, it is, and I think that the, when it comes to sleep, it's important to remember that, you know, sleep medicine is has biological factors, no right. doubt. You know, conditions like sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, sleepwalking, etc. But also... Your sleep is a function of psychological factors, it's a function of environmental factors, and it's a function of behavioural factors mm -hmm. as well. And so one has to really look at one individual's sleep from a holistic perspective, which is very difficult to do if you're only looking at them from one particular angle. Right, right, right. And so how important, creating this holistic perspective, how important do you think creative creativity has been to the way you view this field and your own perspective and the way you created your own space in the medical field? So I think from a purely from a clinical perspective, uh -huh. I think it's made me appreciate the fact that one doctor from one particular specialty cannot give you all the answers when it comes to sleep. And that has really pushed me forward to create a proper multidisciplinary sleep service, which is what we have, over the last few years, been working very hard to create here. So this sleep service is relatively unique in the UK in that we have input from neurologists and respiratory physicians, but also psychiatrists, clinical psychologists, pharmacists, sleep technologists, a whole range of individuals who are coming together to try and resolve the sleep issues of, uh, of our patients rather than mm. looking at it from one clear angle. I think the other thing is, is that as a doctor it's very easy to be very fixed on seeing a problem and trying to use the tools at your disposal to solve that problem, right. which is not always possible. And by engaging with individuals who have these conditions a lot more in a, in a setting outside of the clinical setting, in engaging with you know, artists or engaging with people in the media, I think it gives you a different perspective on what it is you're actually doing, which has been enormously valuable. Yeah, it sounds like it. And so tell me a little bit about this collaboration with the Science Gallery and what's been the most rewarding part of doing that. Well, I think this is a rather an unusual collaboration yeah. for me because it's not something, it's not an area that I've ever been particularly involved with. We've done some work here within the sleep centre where we had an artist in residence who produced some works specific to sleep based upon her sitting in in clinics and seeing some patients with sleep disorders. And if you walk around the sleep centre, you'll see a, a number of her works that have gone on the walls. I think the collaboration at the Science Gallery really came out of the book and an artist contacting me and saying, look, I, I just want to talk to you a little bit about 
sleep. I think the focus of that exhibition was really uh, about anxiety, but mm -hmm. obviously yes. sleep and anxiety have a very close correlation. And I think really in the process of our discussions, it became apparent that her understanding of the association between uh, sleep and anxiety and my own were, were, were not entirely in, in, in sync. And it was really out of those discussions that that piece of artwork developed. Now, I would stress the fact that the piece of artwork is hers rather than, right, right. <laughs> rather than mine, but certainly it was our discussions that in a way allowed that to develop. I see. Do you think navigating those difficult discussions is a necessary step toward putting the best foot forward to, I guess, increase public awareness or education? Well, I think it comes back to this issue that looking at a condition or a series of conditions or an individual from different perspectives right, right. creates a much more whole idea of what's going on mm -hmm. in that particular setting. And actually having somebody who comes at a problem from an entirely different perspective, as the artist did, you know, is informative for me. Right. And hopefully my perspective is informative for her. Totally, yeah. Both, I, I guess both are valid and valuable and... The discussion is necessary to move forward. Yeah. yeah. What would be your advice to yourself 15 or 20 years ago, or, or to a physician in training who is passionate about educating the public in this way, but unsure about where to kind of start? I think that my advice to myself 15 or 20 years ago would be to perhaps understand the importance of those conversations with the general public at a much earlier stage mm -hmm. and, and understand that by seeing somebody in clinic who's sitting in front of you, you help one person at a time. But actually, although as medics we are rather dismissive of the media and we, all, we are always very quick to criticise you know, messages that are not quite in keeping with how we would like our message to be portrayed, then rather than being quick to criticise, we should at least recognise the fact that a lot of good comes out of all of this stuff, that there are huge numbers of individuals out there who we can help en masse by at least helping them identify what it is that's going on with them. Right, because that's right. the start of the journey. Right, that makes sense. The conversations begin by, I guess, correcting the information or having discussions about the information that's already out there. Yeah. If, if I think about the number of individuals who've come to me um, saying, you know, I just thought I was a poor sleeper or that it was normal to shout out in the night or to lash <laughs> out in the night, and then I was sitting in the pub with my friends and one of them said, oh, I've got this, you know, I use a CPAP mask or... I read this article or whatever, and, and that's what has triggered them seeking medical attention. Right, right. Uh, and so it's about starting those sorts of pub conversations mm. through the media, through radio, through books, through television, that actually probably helps the largest number of individuals. Mm. Has all this work in sleep affected your own sleep at all? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I know what it's like to have insomnia, I think that certainly when I've got a book deadline or I know that I've got mm -hmm. a big project on, that will influence my, my sleep. Yeah. But I can't blame all of this work on that. <laughs> right, right, right. Great, I think that's it. That's all from me. Okay. But thanks for sitting down with no, me, guys. pleasure. And there you have it. 
It seems like the way we get to sleep is by not being afraid to talk about it in the first place. Hosting and editing for this podcast was done by me, Shivnad Karni. Music was brought to you by the band Night Float and YouTube's audio library. If you have any thoughts or comments on this podcast, please tweet us at Doctors Create. And please share it with your people if you like the work that we're doing. Finally, I wish you all a good night's sleep. I'll talk to you soon.